find your audience outside of Amazon, building them up, and then you can point that attention towards the channel. Um, but you know, it's not just so easy to stand up a product on Instagram and get a ton of attention, right? You have to potentially then work with influencers. But influencers are- I've spent the last two years learning from the best social media entrepreneurs out there and implementing the skills and ideas they have taught me in order to grow two successful social media businesses. After some time though, I realized that social media was only part of the story. As I expanded my network, I kept finding young entrepreneurs with multi-million or even billion dollar businesses that weren't doing anything on social media. Instead of building their personal brand and selling courses, these entrepreneurs were solving massive market needs by creating the next Airbnb or Uber. But the real question is, as a young entrepreneur, which of these options is best for us? Social media influencer or startup founder? That's where this podcast comes in. With a mix of interviews with people from both sides of the aisle, you can see what appeals to you and how you can take the steps to start and grow your business immediately. Join me and follow along as I sit down with some of the top social media influencers and startup founders in the world to ask the most important questions and extract the information you need without the fluff you don't. My name is Apple Kreider and welcome to Young Smart Money. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today we are sitting down with Ryan Mulvaney to talk Amazon. So Ryan's somebody who's got a lot of experience in Amazon, but he's not one of the people that is going to try to sell you an Amazon course, okay? Because uh, like you guys know, we're sitting down with the startup founders, with the fast growth tech companies and the social media guys. Now, uh, Ryan is much more in, in the primary category. So we're going to be talking about how he was able to get to over a billion dollars in Amazon sales, which is absolutely crazy to think about. He has partnered with over 40, 50, 60, 70 uh, enterprise level uh, clients through his company Quiver, which we're going to be talking about in the podcast today. Quiver is a crazy, crazy project that he started in 2013. Um, it's an Amazon Platinum Marketplace seller, uh, which means they do a lot of sales. So basically, uh, Quiver, we're going to get into it. It's basically an Amazon agency where he's partnering with, like I said, these enterprise level clients to help them sell more of their stuff on Amazon. Um, so he's got a lot of valuable Amazon related information, whether or not you are already on the platform, you're considering it, or you just want to learn a little bit more about what's going on over on Amazon. Ryan is going to share it today. He's also going to uh, dive a bit deeper into mindfulness and really being present because this is something that I've been getting a lot more into lately as we're going to be talking about uh, sort of later in the podcast. But uh, mindfulness, meditation, and just being present, being here in the moment is something that I have been, yeah, working on a lot. And uh, Ryan's got some really, really valuable insights when it comes to that side of things as well. He also has some very strange habits uh, that he's going to be sharing with you guys, some of which I, I definitely, definitely could not um, entertain myself, but he is thriving with what he's got going for himself. So uh, without further ado, I'm super stoked to dive into this again. Ryan is super knowledgeable on Amazon, so um, I'm stoked to let him take it away from here. All right, Ryan, welcome to Young Smart Money. How are you doing today? Doing well, man. I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm young. I don't know if I qualify for young. <laughs> well, the smart. listeners got that taken care of. So, all right, cool. We'll we'll give you we'll give you a pass on that one this time. Appreciate <laughs> it. So, so for our listeners, Ryan, that don't know who you are and what you're working on over at Quiver, uh, they heard a bit about you in the intro, but uh, give them the the elevator pitch of uh, who you are and why they should uh, listen up for the next uh, little bit here. Um, yeah, my name's Ryan, founder at Quiver. Uh, we're a business that helps brands control and sell more products within Amazon. Um, and I went through the journey of founding it, to growing it, to exiting it, um, and have a lot of war wounds, war wounds from, from the journey. Uh, and so hopefully that's something that your, your listeners would find value in hearing about. Sweet. I'm stoked to dive into it. So Let's start off with with your initial sort of exposure to Amazon because it's kind of a similar story that, that I've heard from a couple of listeners actually. Uh, so tell us about how you first got introduced to the world of selling on Amazon. Amazon, wow! You know, if we go back twelve years when your listeners were, you know, probably twelve. Um, <laughs> you know, I uh, I was I was out of college, um, didn't have I was I was a kayaking tour guide at the time. Wild. I did not go to college to be a kayaking tour guide, but I really wanted to be outside for the summer. And um, I was, you know, bouncing between my house and my fiance's parents' house, and my house meaning my parents' house. 
And, um, you know, I was there one night and she came home and she just finished college and she had a textbook and said, Hey, I'm done with it. I don't need this textbook anymore. Sell it on Amazon. I was like, what? Amazon? Uh, and she's like, yeah, someone in my class had done that, you know, just put it up there. And so I, you know, I figured it out, put it up there and about 20 minutes later it sold. And I was like, that's super cool. And it okay. sold for 50 bucks. And I was like, huh, do I tell my fiance it just sold for 50 bucks or do I just pocket them? No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I told her and, you know, I looked around, there were books everywhere at her parents' house. And I just, without asking them, started listing all the books, went to bed. And, and then the next morning I woke up and like half the books had sold. And I was like, this, like, it can't be this easy. Like I've tried stuff before to make money, but like, this is just silly. Like I just need to find used books and put them on Amazon and they're going to sell. And so I continued to test the theory. I, I ended up um, partnering with a library that, that I grew up next to. And, um, you know, they would sell their books for like 25 cents. And I was like so amped that I could sell their books for like three bucks. Um, <laughs> and uh, I would uh, I would give them a part of the proceeds. Um, and, uh, you know, I did that for, uh, for a bit. And then the Kindle came out and I thought that no one was going to read books anymore and got really freaked out. But I still lived at home, so there wasn't a whole lot I could do. So I ended up working with brands that would drop ship product, which was a novel thing back in the day. I had to learn what that meant, but it basically meant I didn't have to carry inventory. I could just list products out there in the wild. And then when they would sell, I would uh, have the brand ship directly to the customer. Um, and what was cool about that is, you know, sometimes I would find the brand had a cheaper price on like homedepot.com. And so I could have it shipped from Home Depot to the customer. There were all sorts of weird things. I mean, I went so, so far as like, I would use like eTales, which is like a commission website, um, or not eTales, what's, what's it called? Anyway, there's a site basically where you go in and if you log in using their affiliate code, you get an added discount on the purchase. So I was like getting credit card points back through like oh added my gosh. all the things, but like, you know, I was just trying to like scrape together a dollar or two because again, like I didn't have like the best job. I was working at like tech startups at this point and you know, ultimately, um, I needed to find another way to make money and, you know, quiver, you know, or quiver wasn't even a thing that it was just this little side hustle. Um, and from there it grew, um, you know, always on the side, I ended up getting a job at an agency and started asking their clients about Amazon because I was just curious, um, and realized that they didn't really care about it. Um, didn't know a lot about it and, and saw a gap there. So I went to the owner of the business of the agency and I said, Hey, would you want to start another business just focused on Amazon for brands? And so we launched quiver under that model, um, about five years ago. Uh, and then we grew it, um, and exited the business about two years ago. So July of 2017. So it was like a three and a half, four year run. Um, I'm still there, still there in an earnout now. Um, and, uh, you know, still helping brands sell products on Amazon. Sick. I'm so stoked that I've been to so much of that. The first part though is like, what was that initial iteration of like the, the Amazon agency, like Quiver's first like iteration? What did that look like? Like, how was that, how was that structured? What was the initial like idea there? Okay, cool. Yeah. You know, I'm a big, um, like put your money where your mouth is kind of person. And I knew how to sell stuff on Amazon, but I didn't necessarily know if I knew how to sell more of something on Amazon. And so when we went to these brands, we came up with the thesis of, Hey, let us buy and then resell your product. So at least you're making money that way. Like we're not going to just take your money from a fee. And then if we sell it, we're basically going to eat what we kill. And so that was one iteration of Quiver. The other iteration was, um, you know, we could also look at Amazon and, and spot all sorts of trends and opportunities. And so we went out and developed a handful of our own products and optimized the listings, you know, just like the agency would do to a website, we would just layer that into Amazon. Um, and then we realized that if we applied that same methodology to existing brands, then we could actually grow their business, um, which is a pretty common thing to do nowadays. But, you know, back in like six years ago, like Amazon SEO, like no, nobody talked about that. Nobody really cared about it. Um, and so that was sort of the niche that we that we fell into. Sick. So like when you were when you were like optimizing these listings and stuff, I mean, like what were some of the. The, the key things that, that you found to be really effective in helping these brands, yeah, not only sell stuff on Amazon, but actually sell more of stuff. So for existing brands that were already in market, like brands you would go to the grocery store and see, um, because they had ignored the marketplace for so long, a lot of the content that was up there was just sort of haphazardly thrown up there by people that were like me, like prior to starting Quiver. 
And so I sort of understood why the content was there. And then we needed to figure out, well, how were those sellers actually getting those products? Because if we could cut off the source, um, we could then upload any content we want without the worry of it being overwritten. So there was just a lot of like haphazard, like the, the way Amazon looks today is, is, is a lot different than the way that it looked five years ago. I mean, you would go to, to major brands listings and there wouldn't be any images on like there'd be like one bad image taken from an iPhone. There wouldn't be any wow. bullets. There wouldn't be any description. So we like really had a lot of like, you know, upside if we could just get a, a handle over up, updating, you know, the, the basics. Huh. And, and why, I mean, why weren't brands doing this themselves? They just didn't like see the value in it. You know, there, there was, there was a couple approaches to Amazon by bigger brands five years ago. The first was to just sell direct to Amazon through a program called vendor central. Um, and, and when you did that, it was sort of like putting Amazon on autopilot. It was like, cool, they're going to order product and Amazon's going to sort of take care of it all for us. Um, and you know, Amazon has their way of doing things. And then there's, you know, the way of doing it, if you were going to be doing it yourself. Um, and you know, oftentimes it wasn't as optimized as you would want it to be. The other side of it is you have to remember like five or six years ago, a lot of these brands, you know, e-com was a thing and they would maybe have like their website and they would maybe go direct to consumer, but they were still, there was still the big belief in like retail and, and maybe e-com is going to disrupt it. Maybe it wasn't, you know, we would say Amazon and it was, it was put in the same category as like eBay. Um, and if, if we think about the way that we think of eBay today, sort of like it's there, it's not super relevant anymore. Um, not nearly what it was, you know, back in the day or even like Walmart marketplace today, like what's it going to become? That's sort of what Amazon was five or six years ago. Brands didn't really know it was worth paying attention to. Hmm. So, so then when it came to, to listing their stuff, like you said, there was just all this upside because they'd been completely like neglecting it. It wasn't like a, a primary focus of theirs. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I don't want to say it was easy, but it was, it was like the hard part was explaining our model to the brands, telling them that we're not going to charge you a fee to do all this work because we knew how much upside there was if we could just get a handle of their distribution and then selling it within Amazon and then updating the content. Like it was like, they would come to, they'd be like, well, what's the catch? We're like, no, there's, there's no catch. Like you just, and then when you say that, like, that's the worst thing you could say. Yeah. Catches. Like we actually considered of like starting to charge just like a setup fee so that we'd be like catches. It's, it's, you know, 500 bucks for us to set it all up just so that they would feel good about paying for something. Um, but we knew, we knew the upside was there. So how were you, how were you initially getting clients? I know you were working with this agency, so you guys probably had a little bit of, of a book of business, but um, how were you, how were you reaching out to people or how were you finding clients? Great question. So because of the agency and, and, you know, this is one of the big, the big things is, you know, at that agency, the guy that I partnered with, I had two partners there. The one who started the agency um, had already exited businesses before. It was very well known in the community. And so his lead flow of just referrals was just constant. And it was something that he always believed in you. You take care of the people that refer business into you. And so a lot of our business was referral based. We didn't really do much of any cold outreach. Um, because again, like if, if we're reaching out to you and then we're like, it's this free model, like it, it just seems like, wait, what, like what are you, what are you really trying to sell me? Yeah. Um, the other side of it is because we had to buy and then sell the product. Um, it was a very cash flow intensive business. So if we brought on a new brand, it was like, great, we closed them. Now let's go find a hundred thousand dollars so we can do an opening order. And so you could essentially grow yourself to death if you didn't have the means to fund it. And so we were very conservative, conservative about who we brought on and, and the types of brands we wanted to work with um, because we were taking a leap of faith with them for sure. Were you guys taking on outside funding or was it all just like bootstrap and then cash flow from the agency? We um, had uh, one investor, well, he came to us. He's like, all right, I'll write a check right now. Um, it, was, it was for, I don't know, like 100, 150 grand or something like that. And we're like, Okay, sounds good. And then we 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 were like, look, we can't take your money. Like, we don't know if this model's gonna pan out. And like, we're big, like we're big reputation guys. And we're like, look, let us like bootstrap this first opening order. And I remember the opening order was twenty thousand dollars. And I was like, oh my gosh, like we're spending twenty thousand dollars to like open this business. And we went through and we sold it. And then we went back to him like four or five months later. We're like, okay, if, if you want to invest, we're not gonna change the vow. Like, we're gonna we're gonna honor like the, the previous valuation that we had on the business. Like, but we know that this is going to be a cash flow intensive business. So we had him and then we had a couple other just sort of angels, um, you know, that came in and did a little bit of funding, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything crazy that the big, the big, you know, when you are a new business that's growing, 
capital is always hard to come by because you don't have the credit to get it. Like you can't go to the bank and just take out a loan. Um, well, at least we couldn't. And, and, and the types of loans we needed, like we didn't need $10,000. We needed like a million dollars. And so one of the beautiful things is Amazon has a whole lending program. So really? as, as your business grows with Amazon, you can actually, they, they will lend you money. Um, and they like it because they have all your inventory at their fulfillment centers. So if you like default for some reason, like, cool, we're just going to take that. Um, so it's a good, it's a good program for that. But I mean, within like, you know, we, we got like really cash flow tight and we didn't want to like raise money and dilute the business to, to, you know, to be just reselling products basically on Amazon. And so when Amazon came, we, we took their money very quickly. <laughs> that's, that's dope. So like how many, um, approximately how many companies were you working with at a time and, and how, how did that scale? Um, you know, in the beginning we had a, a, we've always been a very lean team. If you look at our like revenue per employee, it's, 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 it's pretty healthy. Um, and so, you know, initially probably pre-acquisition, we probably had like 40 clients. Um, we always went after the boutique model. Like we could have, you know, if we changed our margin requirements, we could have had, uh, you know, 500 clients. Sure. Um, but because we were paying for the, like we were funding the business ourselves, um, and there's inherent risk in, in, in just running very low margin businesses. We always kept it very sort of like, all right, we want to work with the brands that we want to work with. Um, that we actually think we can move the needle with. Uh, you know, today we probably have like, I don't know, maybe 60 to 75 clients. We're still, we still keep it super boutique uh, and just try to go really deep with the, with the clients that we have. How do you assess which clients you're going to be able to move the needle with? Like what are those characteristics that you're looking for? You know, it's, it's buy-in from them is the first piece. It's what are they willing to do to actually solve the problem? So, so back in the day, we, we sort of talked about having, you know, rogue sellers on the marketplace, just people they didn't know who it was, how they're getting the product. And if they don't want to have the tough conversations with their distribution channels on like how this product is actually getting there, there's nothing we can do to actually solve the problem because we're just going to jump on these listings and be rotating with other sellers, basically. I mean, that's the way that Amazon works, you know, as, as a consumer, when you go there and you see the add to cart button, the seller that gets the add to cart button, if there's multiple sellers selling the same product is the one with the lowest price and, you know, good, good score and all that stuff. And so, um, everybody can have a good score within Amazon if you've been selling long enough. And so they start battling on price, which means over time, the price usually goes lower. And that's why consumers love Amazon. It's a brilliant model. We don't like that model as a seller because over time our margin is going to be depleted. And so it's really getting buy-in from the brand to make sure that this is an initiative that they want to go after. Um, I think the other side of it too is, they need to have a, you know, a reality check on, um, you know, what competition looks like on Amazon, you know, what their expectations can be in terms of market share and sales. Um, it's funny, we, we used to work with a brand um, that had, um, you know, rogue sellers on the marketplace that drove the price down. Um, and we used to, you know, work with them to try to clean it up. And, you know, we were selling it at like this product at like 10 bucks. And um, I, I actually like looked at them yesterday and, they, they kicked off all the sellers. They raised their prices to $25 and a product that went from selling probably like 200 units a day is now probably selling like 10. And so it's like, cool, you can come in and control it. But if, if you really think that you can sell the same volume at a price that's two X at least, it's just not going to be there. So just, you know, just having a nice little reality check with all the brands is, is key too. That's real. So when you say kicking people off the listing, is that something that a brand can, can just do or how does that work? No, they can't. Um, you know, because Amazon's an open marketplace, if you have access to the product, whether you're getting it directly from the brand or you're going to target and then flipping it within Amazon, for the most part, you're allowed to do that. So what it comes down to is working with the brand to figure out how those sellers are getting that product. And normally if they're going to target, they're not going to be getting that product in, in, in any form of scale. Yeah. Usually going to be a leak from either a wholesale account that's telling them that, Hey, we're just this store, but we're actually selling it on Amazon. They're not, they're just not being transparent about it. Um, or they're selling through like a distributor and a distributor is somebody who's going to sell your product to a bunch of stores for you. And sometimes those stores aren't always brick and mortar stores. They're just Amazon plays. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So, so once you have control of like, you figure out where that leak is, then you can address that and sort of like get things yeah. in place. Yeah. Yeah. You basically cut off their supply. So they just sell through and they can't get it again. 
but it's a massive, you know, if you look at some of the largest sellers on Amazon, they're very good at spotting leaks in the supply chain of big brands. And that's how they get the product up on Amazon and they continue to do a big book of business because some of these big, you know, these big consumer packed good companies, they're just, they're so far and wide. You can't, you can't control it. Sure. So other than being able to like catch those leaks, what are some characteristics that you see, uh, Amazon sellers sort of utilizing or possessing that, that allow them to be successful in this market? Cause I know a lot of people are, are trying to get involved with selling on Amazon, whether that's like wholesaling fulfilled by Amazon, private label, all these different things. Uh, what are, what are some characteristics that you see successful sellers as having? So the, the first, the first batch of successful sellers that, that sort of came to the marketplace, if you go back like five years, it was like, Oh, look, there's some products that, you know, it was basically like, Oh, we want to sell a rolling pin. And if you look at currently on Amazon five years ago, the listings for rolling pins are just not optimized. So if you can create an optimized listing for the same price as that other one and send out some samples to people to review, like you will have the best selling rolling pin within a matter of months. And that's just the way it worked. And then that model was so easy that people started creating courses about it and it started getting rinsed and repeated. And what you have today is it's very hard for that company that maybe launched a rolling pin five years ago to launch a new product today because there's so much saturation within the category and anything that is sort of a commodity product that's not going to be driven by, you know, oh, I want that brand of product, like a rolling pin. Like, I don't care what brand my rolling pin is. Um, those products are all just sort of at like net low margins and they're just not really attractive like they were sort of back in the day. Um, and so the new breed of, you know, selling on Amazon is you actually have to stand up a real brand behind a product. You can't just sort of hack Amazon and expect to have a really, you know, solid experience. And, you know, it's getting more expensive from an advertising perspective um, within Amazon, outside of Amazon, there's more competition. And so, you know, the, the sort of like glorious days five years ago are over, but there's never been a bigger opportunity to sell product on Amazon because of the amount of volume that's happening there. You just have to have unique ideas and, you know, really do the things that a brand would normally do um, to, to create a brand. What are, what are some of those actions that, that people who are trying to create like a real brand uh, from the ground up? Like what are some, what are some good starting points for that? Um, great question. So it's funny if you look at some of the brands that, you know, started five years ago on Amazon and products. And if, if you look at them outside of Amazon, there's no presence. They have no footprint outside of Amazon yet. They're doing millions of dollars of sales a year potentially because they have that real estate within Amazon. They have those reviews, they get all the searches. Um, so today, if you want to take back market share from some of those, you know, you look at the places that they're not playing or they're not playing well. So if you go to like social, like if you're looking at them on Instagram or Facebook or even their website, like they're going to be completely under indexed. Uh, and so I think it's, you know, trying to find your audience outside of Amazon, building them up, and then you can point that attention towards the channel. Um, but you know, it's not just so easy to stand up a product on Instagram and get a ton of attention, right? You have to potentially then work with influencers but influencers aren't going to want to just pay attention to some random rolling pin. Your rolling pin needs to be like coated in gold and like whatever, like you really need to do stuff to stand out so that you can get the attention and do something. Uh, I had a friend, he, he said that they, they create thumb stopping content. So it's like stuff you're scrolling through and they stop with your thumb on it. I was like, dude, that's great. How do you create thumb stopping, you know, products? Because those are the types of things that are going to stand out and you're really going to have a brand behind. But the, the key to all of that is it's hard right? It's not, it's not just easy to come up with those types of ideas and you really need to sit down and figure out like, all right, what are you passionate about? Where can you offer some differentiation with what's in the market and where can you sort of go to bat? Because if you don't have all those components in there, it's really hard to be authentic and try to take market share from somebody that is passionate, knows what they're talking about and already is sort of off to the races with an idea. I, I can totally see where that'd be the case. And, and when it comes to like getting market share on Amazon, one thing that I'm curious about is whether, cause I mean, Quiver is, is like dependent on the Amazon platform and, and you've been selling on the Amazon platform for like 12 years. Has there ever been a time where like your dependence on the platform to like sell things for other people has like burned you like having your eggs in this basket of Amazon? Cause like they can change their algorithms. They can do whatever they want. Um, I'm assuming there's, there's maybe there's some kind of like certainty, but for the most part, I mean like Facebook can change their algorithm, Google can change their algorithm, Amazon can change their algorithm. So has there ever been a time where that's been like an issue for you? Um, yeah. So, I mean, Amazon is like the hand that feeds all. And yeah. so 
in that we have like the utmost respect for Amazon and then the utmost fear to not do anything to, to cross them because they will turn off seller accounts if you break rules. Wow. Um, they'll hold your money if you break rules. And when you've got, you know, accounts payable um, to the scale that we do, if they're holding on to your money, like that's not a good situation to be in. And so like I joke that we have like a, a candle lit next to a picture of Jeff Bezos at 24 hours a day, just as it's like our little altar praising our gods. Um, but you know, you know, in terms of like algorithm switches and stuff like that, Amazon's not as drastic as Google. Um, it's more subtle. So the subtle things that Amazon's doing, and there was actually a wall street journal article about this like a week ago, um, is they start changing the way the search displays, but it's going to be more of, all right, now ads are going to show up in search. Um, we're going to start featuring, um, our own products within a little module in the search results. And they're always testing things. Um, but you know, sort of broad blanket, like rollouts, um, you know, aren't, you know, as typical, what they will do is they'll change policy. So you're going to have to go back through and change all of your titles, for instance. Um, I will say the biggest thing that they have done, which has had an impact on our business is like two years ago, two and a half years ago, they basically started suppressing the add to cart buttons on listings. If, um, and I'll explain what that means if they detected a cheaper price outside of Amazon. So actually you've got, I could pull it up on my phone, like hold it up to here to show sure. people. They, let's see if I can actually do it. So what they'll do is if, if they determine that a product is cheaper on Amazon or on Target or Walmart, they're going to remove the add to cart button. And instead it's going to say, seen all buy options, seen all buying options. Um, and in that you have to click on it. And then from there you can select your option and then actually buy the product. So it's not the best user experience and your conversion rates can drop pretty significantly. So here's one. Um, let me show you what a normal product listing would look like. So, and this is not fun for people that are just listening. On <laughs> but if you go to Amazon and you see like add to cart, it's just the normal add to cart experience. Like you would just go there or buy now versus um, scrolling down to one that doesn't have it on there. Um, you get to these listings and you just think that they're dead. It just says seen all buying options. Yeah. So what Amazon will do is they do that because they know sellers are going to be bummed out because all of a sudden their sales are cut in half and they want the seller to then lower the price so that it's going to be competitive with Target and Walmart because what Amazon cares about at the end of the day is their customers and their customers getting products for cheap and quality products. And so they know that if they do this over time, maybe the sellers are going to lower their price or the brand's going to go back to Target or Walmart and say, hey, you guys are you know, too low. You got to raise your price so that it's all competitive. And wow. so it's had a, that, that has a, had a very dramatic impact on many businesses. Um, and it's, it's something that Amazon's gotten some heat over. But again, like I always say, like, look, it's their marketplace. They can do whatever they want. Like, we don't have to sell there if we don't want to, right? Yeah. Um, Dang. I mean, that's, that's really smart on their end. I mean, they're basically just suffocating out like, arbitrage opportunities that they don't want to be happening because they want the sales on Amazon. Yeah. And for your, your customers, I mean, think about this. If you ever see a seen all buying options button on a listing, maybe check out target and Walmart because <laughs> over there. That's, that's so wild. I, I, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on behind the scenes over at Amazon that I just have no, no knowledge of. So it's, it's super interesting to be talking with you right now. Sure. Um, I'm curious, there's, there's one thing that, that has me interested, really interested about your story. And, and, and that sort of comes back to like the premise of the podcast where I like talking to people who are both on the like fast growth, like tech company startup side, and then on like the social media influencer side. And you're very much like more so focused on like, on like the first side of that. So I'm curious why that is, because you mentioned, I mean, all these people selling Amazon courses on how to uh, start these, these private labels or how to like start selling rolling pins on Amazon. And since you've been selling for like 12 years, I mean, what led you not to go down that path is, is what I'm curious about. Uh, well, a non-compete in an earnout, <laughs> right? So I, you know, when you sell your business, they, they put in certain rules that you well, that's can't, more recently you can and can't do, but okay. But prior to that, like, I don't know. I'm, I, I, here's the thing, the way that Amazon worked because it was easy five years ago and it's a lot more difficult today. Um, what happened is some people taught you that model or some people learned that model, mm -hmm. made some money, realized it was really difficult to replicate. So they're like, well, I'm just going to make money by teaching people that old model. Uh, and that's not everybody, but I was like, look, I don't, I don't want to teach somebody something that I don't think is of value. Uh, and so 
that was part of the reason. Um, the other side of it is I was just so heads down with the business um, of growing this business. I didn't really have time to think too much about that piece. Um, and uh, oh, there's one, there's one last thought on this. Oh, and, and so I ended up doing a course uh, for link. So LinkedIn approached me and said, Hey, oh. we need, need to do a course on Amazon. Will you do it? And um, what do you want to charge for it? And I was like, I don't want to charge any, like, I, I, I don't know. I'm such a free like information person. I don't want to be the guy that's like, all right, now you can know all my secrets for like 2000 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so when LinkedIn came to me, I was like, look, I don't want to charge for the course. Make, can we make it free? And like, okay, it's going to be on LinkedIn learning, which I think you have to pay like 40 bucks a month for or something mm -hmm. like that. But here's the kicker. You can do a, you can do a free trial. Hey. And so, so I posted about it and LinkedIn probably hated me for it. But like, look, you can take my course. It should not take you 30 days. You can do it under the trial. And then maybe there's other courses you can want to take. Cool. If not, you can just get your money back. And so um, I thought that was like my one way of putting out the course for free. So I could, you know, create information, put, add some value there. So yeah, there is a course out there on LinkedIn. It came out um, in July of this year. Sick. And, and like pro tip, okay, for all the students listening, uh, if you go to a public university, probably a private one as well, there's a good chance that you actually have LinkedIn learning for free. Oh. Um, I know at my school, we actually have access to that. So after this podcast, I'm gonna go check out Ryan's course, learn a couple more yeah. things about selling on Amazon. Um, but that's, that's a little pro tip that not a lot of people know about. I mean, I didn't know about it my first year at school. Um, but now I've actually been utilizing that a little bit more. Yeah, there's a ton of good courses out there. And I, I was fortunate enough to, to, to sync up with a couple of the instructors that were recording out there at the same time. And I mean, they, they, they bring really smart people into, to, to, uh, excuse me, to teach these courses. So yeah, it's definitely worth looking at, especially if it's free. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, another thing that I wanted to, to touch on really quick, and, and you just mentioned this uh, recently is, is the sale of quiver. So for a lot of young listeners, they're not going to be very familiar with like the exiting process and like what goes into that. So can you sort of walk us through from like the time of, of having this idea in your head or of being approached um, through the actual sale? Like what did that whole process look like? Sure. So, so having partners really gave me like the opportunity to think bigger. Um, I remember, you know, one of our first investors, we did, we did probably like two to 3 million our first year. I think it was like 3 million bucks in our first year, year and a half ish. And I remember our investor coming down. He's like, look, if you did three, you can do 10. I was like, okay. Like, so I like wrote it, I wrote it on a legal pass, like 10, like that's crazy. I need to 10. And then like, sure enough, like, you know, a year later we did it. And so, um, having the right partners and the people that could just think bigger than I could constantly was so key. I joked that I'd, I'd still be like selling like little random products out of my garage. If I had linked up with people that just knew how to see beyond the mountains in front of us. And so, you know, as we grew quiver, you know, I was head down with clients and business and running when my partners had the insight was look, if, if we want to continue to scale this business, it's going to take capital. And if we're create, if we're, if we're taking on capital to just resell other people's brands, like we're at the whim of them potentially leaving us at some point. Like it's not, it's not a super, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just not a super scalable business cause it's going to get really cash intensive. And so what we started to think about was, well, maybe there's somebody that could, you know, a bigger company that could benefit from some of our knowledge and clients, um, that we, that we could find as a strategic partner. And so, you know, we ended up working with a broker who went out and, um, you know, really like fine tuned our business to get it into shape for acquisition, which is a, which is a big undertaking when you're a startup. It's like, what are all the things we need to be trapping? Um, what do we need to be looking at on a monthly basis? And then ultimately like, what are the, the, uh, the acquisition companies going to be looking at if they came in here? Um, so that we just basically have, we can get through what is called due diligence as fast as possible because diligence is basically where you're like, you know, it's, it's like you're on the operating table and they can just like poke at anything and you, you want to basically have answers for anything that they could potentially poke at. And you're like, as soon as possible. And so that's really like that. It's almost like a, like a due diligence boot camp before you go in. And so worked with the broker. She, she lined up some meetings with some cool people. And we, we had interest too before that people would reach out to us and say, Hey, if you're interested in taking on money, um, do this, that, and the other thing. And so we had, um, you know, numerous meetings and then we found one that we really liked. And, you know, ultimately when you're selling your business, um, you can sell, you know, to a myriad of people, 
um, or companies, but the strategic partner is going to be the best because normally you're going to get the best valuation because you're coming in strategically to their portfolio to help them grow their business. And we were lucky enough to have a couple conversations with strategics. And then we found the one that just really like suited us best. And, you know, we really believed in their mission um, and, and we're ultimately acquired by them. Solid. So did things change for you personally after being acquired? Um, day to day, no, like nothing like they, they really made it clear that they were acquiring us for our knowledge, for the way that we do things. Um, and they weren't going to come in here and like come over the top and really change anything. Um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to continue to hit our numbers so that we, we, we've continued to, you know, sort of earn their respect and, and, and continue to run the business the way that we want to, to do it. Um, I think the big thing that changed for me was just my headspace. I was like, I, I would, I would come into the, to the building and I was still super motivated, super, super stoked to sell stuff on Amazon. But I was like, I don't, you know, like I, I had a mountain I was gunning for and I got to the top of that mountain, you know, metaphorically. And then I was like, what am I, what am I doing now? Uh, and it's a very, it's a, it's an interesting headspace for an entrepreneur to, to get to because we're so tunnel vision towards a goal. And I never really, I never really thought past the goal. Uh, and so I had to do, you know, I had to do a lot and I wasn't like bummed. I wasn't sad. I wasn't like, oh, I'm not going to work today. Like I was still super stoked for everything. I just had to sort of redefine my purpose, uh, within the organization to figure out how do I now add the most value to continue to grow this business for the business that acquired us. Hmm. Uh, and it was just a, it was just a, like a, a subtle mind shift that I had to work through. Um, and ultimately that's where I started producing more content. Um, I dusted off a film degree I had in a past life and you know, we never marketed the business ever. We were so heads down growing it. And I said, well, if we started to just do, you know, information about Amazon, like maybe that would drum up more business for us. And so I really, really latched onto that. Huh. So with, with the content you're putting out, like what kind of people are you hoping to attract with that? Because, uh, is it more of those like large, like enterprise level clients? So it's, um, it's cool because I put, I put it out on LinkedIn and LinkedIn's become almost like a support group for Amazon. So we have a question like, Hey, I'm seeing this. Are you seeing this? We can sort of go back and forth with, with the marketers of Amazon and get an answer sometimes quicker than we could if we just reached out to Amazon. Huh. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's a whole, <laughs> a whole consortium of, uh, Amazon marketers that, that we've connected with, you know, CMOs at brands. Uh, and then just beyond that, like, I would say probably like 80% of the content is around just stuff I'm noticing within the marketplace, people selling stuff online. And then 20% of it's more around just headspace and more motivational around like, you know, like, like I, I didn't, I, we didn't even go through this, but like I got laid off from a tech startup. And then like two days later I got a job because I had been selling stuff on Amazon with a new company. And so, you know, all of this like quiver became what it was because of a layoff essentially. And so there's a lot, I think there's a lot of those things that I just sort of brush over in, in the story that I think it has value for people that are on LinkedIn who are normally going to be looking for jobs um, or trying to connect with people to sort of take their career to the next level. Sure. So talk to us a little bit more about like that, that headspace aspect of things. Uh, what, were, what were some of those shifts that you had to go through? Um, one, at the, at the time of, of sort of after the acquisition, really figuring out like what is your purpose, um, but also just like in, in general, what have, what have been some of those big like pivotal like headspace shifts for you? Um, you know, it's funny. I, over the course of starting the business, I had been posting, like I write poetry, which sounds kind of weird, but really, okay. Yeah. And so like just little, like little, I call it motivation. It's like <laughs> motivational quotes. It's like more like quotes. Okay. And so over the course of, of the business, I, I would, I was always like posting stuff like just along the way. And it was, it was sort of keep my head in the game. Like, Oh, sort of stressful day. Boom. But we're still going or this, this, and this, like, let's have some perspective. And so, um, upon like, you know, exit of the business, like I, I went through a period where I was so heads down, I stopped posting those for, for a little bit. I started like, you know, doing that again. And, and what I found was it would just keep my brain sort of in the game, keep me sort of fine tuned. It was like waking up with something to think about waking up with purpose. Um, and ultimately, you know, I think that sort of got me back on track. I also did uh, start meditating, hmm. which was like force you to sit there with your thoughts and try to have less thoughts. Uh, and that gave me a lot of perspective because when we sold the business, um, I always, I joked for like the first year and a half. I'm like, wow, I didn't know they actually like acquired your brain. 
because I felt like so foggy all the time because there was just so much going on. Um, and I really wasn't taking any time to like stop and, 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 and watch the world move around me. I was always just trying to move within the world. And so meditation really like forced me to do that. And I like all of a sudden, like, like this like veil came off and I was like, Oh my gosh, like I can remember stuff again. I can start. And I didn't like, I didn't sit and have some crazy spiritual experience. It was just the act of like trying to slow down my thought process so that I could like come back into the world after that with more of a clear mind. And it's been, it's been transformative. Huh. So what is, what does that practice look like for you of, of slowing down and of like disconnecting? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's leaving the phone when you don't need it. Like, yes. <laughs> I don't take the phone in the bathroom with me, <laughs> like, <laughs> which was weird. Like I didn't realize like I was taking the phone to the bathroom with me. Like, it's just a like weird thing where I was like brushing my teeth on my phone. I'm like, what am I doing? So it's like, don't, we don't need a screen next to us all the time. I mean, there's little things like when I drive now, unless I have a very long drive, like I drive in silence. I don't oh, need, I, I do I, that too. Not even music. And yep. you know what I found is if I ever had a kind of gnarly day, I would get into my car and I would never turn anything on. I would just be like sitting there with my thought versus like normally I'd be like, Oh, podcast, let's go. Let's listen to some music, whatever. But I started driving in silence and it's amazing what you miss out on when you're just constantly tuned in from one thing to the next thing, or even being at home, like when I'm making dinner, like I would have a podcast going and it like, which is fine. Like if, if that's what, that's what you want to do, that's cool. But for me, what I would find is I wasn't being mindful of making the dinner. And so for me, like someone who has naturally like a very ADD mind, um, overstimulation really affects my focus. And so really slowing down. So what it, what it comes down to is trying to be more mindful in the things that I'm doing and then forced mindfulness for about 15 to 30 minutes a day in the morning and sometimes in the evening of just meditation and just trying to slow down and, 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 and focus on nothing. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so behind that. Like I've, I've just recently been getting myself into a place where I'm like trying to slow down more. Cause I am a very like go, go, go type person. Like I want to be like feeling like I'm accomplishing things, getting stuff done. But yeah, sometimes, like you said, it's it's really important to just like observe the world around you and like be present with where you're at rather than just trying to like be doing everything at once. Well, yeah, man, we live in such a like, like a hustle culture and like, and I, I'm like, I'm like, like I promote it, but it's yeah. like, I get like hustle anxiety if I sit for too long. I'm like, oh man, I, I need to be doing something. And I'm like, look, like, who are you trying to keep up with? Like, you know, and ultimately you're going to burn out and um, you know, it's okay to, it's okay to stop because what you'll do is like, um, you know, I do, I do, I work out quite a bit and I do CrossFit and in CrossFit we'll program in rest specifically because I, we know that after that rest, we can come back into a movement and start sprinting it again versus just kind of going through it all. Like, you know, you'll end up doing the workout quicker by planning the rest because you know that you can fully rest and then come back harder. And so I think it's so important. And I never knew that. Like, I never really like thought about that from a business perspective or from a brain perspective of actually just like forced slowing down and slowing down. Like it could be as, as subtle as like when you're walking from your car to your office, like try to hear the birds. Like try to do that. When was the last time you looked up at the clouds and just appreciated, you know, how weird this life is <laughs> how we're on this planet. And so there's, there's very little things you can do and it doesn't have to take 15 minutes a day to really shift sort of the way that you perceive it. I'm so, I'm so with that. I've been doing this little experiment on myself since uh, Sunday night, I turned my phone off um, and, and now it's Friday and I haven't felt the need to turn it back on yet. So I've just been like really trying to, to be present. I'm not, I don't have a podcast yet. I don't have music in all the time. Like I'm like walking around, walking around campus, just like saying what's up to people, like meeting new people, just like looking at the clouds, like you said, dude. So it's like, I, I I don't think people have to go like that dramatic. Like don't turn your phone off for a week if you don't want to, but like finding ways to like really connect and just like, yeah, be present is, is really, really big for me. I love that, man. It's a, a cell phone diet would be amazing. Like, yeah. I was going to just do like Mondays. I wasn't going to use my phone, but then Tuesday came around and I was like, you know what? I'm going to just keep it rolling and see what happens. So that's cool. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. If you drive and get to a stoplight and then look, watch the people's eyes go from the road down every single time yes Not only is that dangerous but it's like why is your brain so conditioned that it needs to be stimulated all the time like what are what are you what are you what are you what are you being numb to basically what are you running from Dude, and it's such an addiction when you when you sit and, and you know come present 
you realize that there's a lot of beautiful things to be looked at. We're just missing them when we're always on our phone. I, so the last episode of the podcast, I talked to this dude named, named Liam and he, we were talking about this thing, the, the, the distraction economy, how people at Facebook are investing like billions, trillions of dollars into like ways to, to manipulate us and to make us so addicted to like their platform. Like they're spending all this money, all this time, all this research, like finding ways to make the most addictive product possible. And they're doing a really good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and beyond that, you know, look at, um, look at, they own Oculus. Yeah. Like, what do you think it's going to be like when the glasses you're wearing have VR built in them or AR? Um, and your currency is just built in so you can just pay for stuff while you're in there. You got Libra. You're just good to go. You never have to leave. It's, it's <laughs> you know, it's going to be crazy. And, and look, like, I think that's going to be awesome. Like when you can go into these worlds and it, I can look around and see historical things or whatever, I, like I can, I can start painting a reality that I want to see, but then you have to recognize that take the glasses off, put the phone down. That's actually isn't the reality you're in right now. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's a healthy dose of like, you know, recognizing that for what it is and then coming back to actually what the world is. <laughs> that's, that's so true. Well, Ryan, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. I'm, I'm super stoked to that. We got to sit down for this conversation and I'm stoked to check out uh, your, your course on LinkedIn learning after I finish this. Um, cool. But uh, for, for the listeners, I've got some questions now that I like to ask all of my guests. So you feeling ready for those? Let's jam. Sick, dude. The first of which is, uh, what is something that genuinely has you excited right now? It could be in your business, your life, really anything. Um, meditation. Sick. I dig it. I dig it. Yeah, uh, I feel like there's so much more to explore. And, I, and I'm like just scratching the surface with it. Yeah, there's, I, I would I definitely agree, man. I, I haven't even scratched the surface. So like, that's an area that, that I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to be moving more into as the year goes on. Um, do you have any habits that have served you particularly well, ideally, like outside of, of meditation, since we've talked about that a bit already? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm weird. Like, like, let's just, we'll just put it out there. So I, um, I'm a minimal minimalist by nature. So I wear the same outfit every day, except for Fridays, I change my shirt to a Ooh. different so I try to make less choices throughout the day. Um, so I don't, I wear the same thing. I don't eat, I eat one meal a day. Really? Uh, you're, you're the OMAD. Yeah. Is that, what's that called? OMAD? One meal a day. Oh yeah. I'm an OMAD. <laughs> I'm going to start, I'm going to start doing that. Um, I, uh, so I'll have water until like five and then I'll eat between five and nine. Uh, on top of that, I'm a vegan. <laughs> uh, Dang. So, I mean, other habits too. I work out uh, religiously at like five thirty in the morning. Um, try to get my sleep in. That's a that's a new thing for me. Like, try to get seven hours. Try. It's really hard for me. I try seven day. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of weird quirks. And my wife, she's famous. She's like, okay, what are you cutting out now? Uh, like, what are you doing now? And you know, she she just knows. That's so real. That's so real. Um, do you have anyone who you uh, look up to either in a, a business sense, in a, in a personal sense, but like who are some of the people that you look up to or respect? Um, I really like Tony Robbins. Uh, I, I like the idea of, of helping people out at scale. And he's really figured that out, like really transforming people's lives. So I've always been, I've always had my eye on, on him and sort of the way that he, he goes about it. I also like Gary Vaynerchuk, which is probably no shocker. Um, I just feel that he's so real uh, and genuine with what he says. And he just doesn't care. Like he just, he's him un unapologetically. And yep. I think that's so admirable. Uh, and probably the other person that I love is uh, Oprah Winfrey. Hmm. I just, I look at the path that she went, um, leveraging like her, her stardom within TV to really influence the world positively. And I think that's really admirable. Sick. Yeah, mad respect for all those people. Um, last thing, Ryan, where can where can the listeners go if they want to learn more about you, Quiver, follow up? Um, where's where's the best place for them to go? I'm on LinkedIn, so just Ryan Mulvaney on LinkedIn. Uh, if you want to connect, you you know messages. You, this is the thing with LinkedIn. Like you get a lot of messages on LinkedIn, and it's really hard to like cut through the madness. Yeah. So if you want to send me a note, just Ryan Mulvaney, M U L V A N Y dot com. You can shoot me a note there. I'm also on Instagram. So wherever, wherever you, whatever suits your fancy, I guess. <laughs> Solid. I'll be sure to link up all of those in the show notes to make it easy on our listeners. Ryan, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you, man. I'm extremely grateful for it. Do you have any last uh, parting thoughts, words of wisdom, or anything you want to leave the listeners with here today? Oh, uh, 
after listening to this, turn everything off and just take in for one minute wherever you are and breathe. Breathe through it. It's beautiful out there. Just pay attention to it. Straight up. Take out the earbuds. Enjoy yes. life for a little bit. I dig yes. it. Ryan, thank you so much, man. It's been a blast. Thanks, bud. Bada bing, bada boom. That is a wrap, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this last episode of Young Smart Money. If you did, you know what to do. Um, drop us a five-star review on iTunes. It would mean the world to me. I literally run on reviews like they are the fuel that goes into my body and gets me jazzed up, fired up every single morning. So if you take the time, literally it's like five seconds to drop a review. If you're in the podcast app, literally just go to Young Smart Money, scroll all the way down past all the episodes at the very bottom. There'll be a section that says write a review. If you could drop me all of your thoughts, all of your questions, all your comments, all your concerns. I would love to read those. I read each and every one of them. Um, and I really do take them all to heart. So that would mean a ton if you could do that. Otherwise, um, if you guys are wondering how I make money on the show, because if you all notice, I don't put sponsors on the podcast. I don't believe in that. I don't want to waste your time listening to some ad about Squarespace or whatever they're promoting these days on the podcast. And I've been approached by plenty of sponsors, believe me, but they all get shown where the door is because that's not what I believe in. But I am still able to monetize this podcast, turn it into a consistent five figures per month of income. If you guys are wondering how I do that, um, I put together a free cheat sheet for y'all. It's a little bit more than a cheat sheet. It's kind of like an ebook. It's like 20 some pages long where I laid out the 16 methods that I use to monetize my podcast. So if you guys are interested in that, I'm um, getting completely free. Just head over to applecriter.com slash cheat sheet. That's applecriter.com slash cheat sheet. And you can download that completely for free. Cheat sheet is all one word. Uh, don't ask me to spell it though, because I will probably mess up. So guys, applecriter.com slash cheat sheet for the free cheat sheet. How I'm able to monetize my podcast consistently five figures per month off of that. Um, I really am passionate about podcasting and I want to teach y'all how to do it because I see these guys making videos on YouTube, teaching you like the, the bare minimum, the basics, the stuff that nobody like needs to actually learn. Um, but it's, it's that advanced stuff. It's how to actually make money doing this without having to put sponsors on your show that I think is really, truly valuable. So that's why I wanted to share that with y'all. So guys, again, absolutely free to download. Link will also be in the show notes for this episode. Otherwise, I hope you guys have an absolutely wonderful rest of your day, wherever it leads you. And I'm glad you decided to spend the last hour here with us on Young smart money.